Well, this is sort of a grand adventure story. She just took off thinking that somehow she could figure it out as she went along. Home Before Dark was so complex. By the time I was done with it, I knew I needed to do something completely different. And so the idea of a book that takes place in real time was interesting to me. In all of my books, there's somebody people have an idea about, but underneath they feel like, oh, if you really knew you'd run screaming, because that's what I lived with until my outside person matched my inside person. Hey, everybody. This is Cindy Burnett, and I am the host of the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Several times a week, I interview authors about their latest works. We chat about their covers, their titles, sometimes what inspired them, and always what makes their book stand out. I hope you'll check out my podcast. It can be found on all of the major platforms, including Apple and Spotify. Thanks so much. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. In mid-2020, I received a manuscript called The Rise and Fall of Dick by Zaka Nawaz, and I thought, well, someone's trying to be provocative with that title. Let me see what this is all about. Well, I quickly realized that this was a novel making fun of ISIS, and that Dick was a proxy for ISIS, and it stood for the Dominion of the Islamic Caliphate and Kingdom. I thought, wow, is the world ready to laugh at ISIS? I don't know. Am I ready to laugh at them? And yet I couldn't stop reading and laughing, and I decided I want to help publish this book. Now, two years later, the book is coming out under our imprint, Sugar 23 Books. The new title is Jamila Green Ruins Everything. In the novel, Jamila is a Muslim mom and writer struggling with her faith. She goes seeking answers at her local mosque and meets Ibrahim, the local imam, who has newly arrived in America from Egypt. Their unlikely friendship kicks off an absurdly bonkers chain of events that involves Jamila becoming a CIA operative and flying to Syria to infiltrate ISIS and stop a violent terrorist plot. And I repeat, this book is a comedy. Zaka has always pushed and redefined boundaries with her work. When she created the television show Little Mosque on the Prairie, it was the first show depicting the lives of ordinary Muslims living in the West, doing routine things like raising children and maybe cheating on their taxes. It aired in over 60 countries and ran for six seasons. Now Little Mosque on the Prairie seems very tame compared to writing a satire about Muslims, terrorism and ISIS. In this episode, Zakar and I have a broad conversation about her multi-hyphenate career and how it led to this brilliant debut novel. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I have Zaka Nawaz on Lit Up. I have been waiting years for this. Welcome to the show, Zaka. Thank you so much, Angela. Tell us how you're feeling. The book has already come out in Canada and it's an indie bestseller. People are really responding to it. But knowing that the conversation in the US could be a little different, which is something we'll dive into. 
Oh, I feel overwhelmed with excitement and joy. And I can't leave my computer for more than like 10 seconds before there's a wave of new emails. That's where I am right now. I was just sitting here feeling a little lightheaded, like I'm going to float away <laughs> into the sky. Well, let's quickly dive into what your first novel is about. And then I want to go backwards because I feel like so much, so many of your creative pursuits have, you know, obviously led to this point, but it's been such an interesting kind of snowball towards different topics. And your novel, Jamila Green Ruins Everything, takes on some of the most provocative topics, not only in the Muslim world, but in the greater world at large. In a nutshell, what is this book about for you and what are some of those huge topics that you're tackling? Jamila Green Ruins Everything is about a Muslim woman who has had a terrible tragedy happen to her in the past and as a result it's colored her relationship with her family, her faith, her community and she's having a hard time connecting with anybody or anything and she's lost herself to a wave of bitterness and defeat. And this book is about how she finds a way to heal and come back from this really terrible thing that happened in her life. She has to go on what we call a hero's journey in order to find herself and reconnect with all the people who love her. And it's a story about faith and humanity and not losing yourself to despair. I love that, not losing yourself to despair. I wonder, did you feel despair when you started to write it? Yeah, it, I feel like I came, just like Jamila Green, I also came through this really interesting cycle of feeling that, you know, one's career professionally is not going as well as one had hoped, and then starting to feel like, okay, <laughs> it's all over. I had written a memoir in 2014 and I had really hoped it would, you know, come out in the New York Times bestseller list and it would, you know, doing these amazing things and it hadn't done as well as I had hoped and I hadn't been able to get another television show off the ground. So I kind of was reeling from these professional, what I thought setbacks and I thought, oh, you know, I'm never going to write again. I'm never going to have a television show again. So I started circling the drain in terms of feeling like I wasn't talented. I didn't have the skills to do it and the world had forgotten me. And, and I was in that space when I first started writing Jamila Green Ruins Everything. And her prayers to God were similar to my prayers. Like, why do all these other people get so much success when I believe in you and they don't even care about you? <laughs> so, And it was really therapeutic to write the book because, you know, bit by bit, my career started coming out of that spiral and I was working my way back, you know, to where we are today, where I'm overwhelmed, <laughs> overwhelmed with projects. I felt like I needed to go through that period of introspection and just asking myself those questions. This is just a cycle. and you It helped going through this whole process of writing the book and getting it published because it taught me that you have to be resilient. Just because something doesn't turn out as you had hoped does not mean all is lost. It just means you just you know keep trying and working and going forward. And people actually are reading and listening and watching what you have produced and they're not feeling the same way about yourself that you are. 
Well, I think from the outside, when I read your bio and I read that you made an award-winning documentary, which I want to talk about, and then you had a, a TV series called Little Mosque on the Prairie that really broke out. It ran for, I think, it was six seasons. It's now available in 60 countries. So it's interesting to imagine you as someone with so much under their belt to have this low point. But I want to revisit this documentary because I've watched it and it's called Me and the Mosque. And I'm going to link out to it on YouTube so everyone else can watch it, examining why men and women are separated inside the mosque, but also how it's really a cultural and patriarchal decision to do that versus a religious one. What was the inciting incident, if there was one, to make you want to make a documentary that you knew could be very offensive to your own community. I grew up in a mosque community. I've gone to mosques since I was a child and all of my classes and weekends and holidays has been spent in the mosque community. So it's a very important part of my upbringing. And one day in our mosque in Regina, I came and there was this like shower curtain <laughs> strung up in the wall and we were told the women had to be behind it because you know for people to see women they were a source of temptation and i knew from my studies of islam that in fact you know during the time of the prophet peace be upon him women were not put behind barriers and they could see what was happening and they actually spoke up i remember one time there was a story that omar the caliph at the time was trying to reduce the amount of money women would get as the bride gift. And one woman stood up and said, there's been no limit put in the Quran, so you actually can't do that. She, she said that in front of the entire congregation who saw her and heard her. And I was thinking to myself, like today, if a woman heard something that she objected to from the imam at the pulpit, could she do the same thing? So I knew that, that the stories didn't support this practice. And that like a lot of faith over the centuries, the spirit of egalitarian gets eroded over time and patriarchy kind of takes over and that you start to accept it and don't question it and start to mix up tradition with theology. So I knew that we had to, as a community, revisit this issue and talk about it in a way that was going to be difficult for the community to hear because they already felt under siege and, and they felt like People viewed Muslims as this religion that oppresses women. But I felt like what I needed to do was take the approach that the religion itself doesn't do or ask for these things. It's the people mm -hmm. and their misinterpretation. So I interviewed, and I made sure I used patriarchy to my advantage. I interviewed really heavy-duty male scholars in the Muslim world. And all of them were like, you're right. These barriers shouldn't exist. Like even some women complained to them and said, well, we want to be comfortable and, and just lie, lie down and relax. He's like, the mosque isn't a place for you to lie down and relax. This is a place of social activism. You need to be sitting and paying attention to what is being said and participate, not fall asleep behind curtains. And it went out and it had this incredible reception in the Muslim and non-Muslim world because I wasn't blaming Islam. I was blaming tradition and I was blaming culture and people could see the difference between the two and it really caused a big conversation to happen that we needed to talk about these things and why they were happening. I think 10 years after the documentary aired, the biggest Islamic uh, organization in North America, the Islamic Society of North America, issued a statement saying that barriers were not 
part of our faith and they shouldn't be erected in mosques. So it made a difference. And people would watch, people would tell me they would actually watch the documentary before they would build a mosque in their community and have a discussion. And that was what sparked the idea of Little Mosque on the Prairie, the television show that would come out of that documentary. Well, it was lovely to see you on camera, um, a young Gazaka. I loved seeing you with your mom and the lovely interaction you had. The thing is with Zaka, you're so smart and funny that you can take a conversation that starts one way and then you end with getting exactly what you wanted out of the, the subject. <laughs> and then because I know so many listeners will know about Little Mosque on the Prairie, what at the heart of that show, what were you trying to do? Yeah, I think because Little Mosque on the Prairie had been the very first show showing a Muslim community living in North America, that the Muslim community themselves were a little divided on it. Because Muslims have been under such siege, you know, in the media and television and film and news being portrayed as terrorists, that there was this reaction that the only way we can be seen as normal people is to have the complete opposite, which is really show us as good and kind and wonderful neighbors and doing all these lovely things and giving out flowers and candy and shoveling people's driveways and cutting people's lawns. And I'm like, okay, first of all, right, that's propaganda and, uh, and it's boring. Nobody would watch a show. You know, maybe if it was a puppet show for children, you could get away with it, but not an adult comedy. And in fact, having Muslims make mistakes and be fully realized human beings who have flaws would actually help people relate to us and our humanity. And in fact, that's what happened. There's a truism by making something very culturally specific, it ends up becoming universal. And so mm. many people came up to me afterwards going, oh my God, you know, the people in the mosque were just the same as, you know, the people in my church or my soccer association. What it proved to me was that really archetypes exist in every organization of human beings. If you put, you know, 10 people together, they're going to divide out into the same archetypes, you know, the bossy one, the the materialistic one, the one who wants to do everything, the quiet one, the shy one. These people exist in every organization. The show took a year and, and maybe two years to win over the Muslim community, certain factions of it. But once they realized that their friends were not turning against them, but were actually feeling more bonded to them, the tide of acceptance turned for me. Which type of person are you in that group of 10? <laughs> oh my God, I'm like the one who feels that she knows it all and needs to smarten people up and just get them to listen to me. I love that. So I'm like that. the annoying bossy one that like drives people crazy. Well, they also get things done and you get a lot done. It must have been a really fun period as well. Is making TV fun? I think parts of it are fun. At the beginning, we didn't have, you know, Muslims with television writing experience. We didn't even have people of color, really. It was just me and seven white guys in a room. And I would have to be working with them and helping them come up with ideas and giving them story ideas. We took them on field trips to the mosque. And wow, we worked together. weird now to it think was really about, weird. isn't it? But also... Would you ask any of them back to write on your next show? I think that we have enough Muslims now and women and men of color that have more experience in comedy. I might ask one or two people back, the ones that I felt like were more, you know, open to hearing what I had to say. 
And I also feel very strongly that we need everyone, white, black, brown, women, all ages, disability, sexual orientation. The wider your group is, the better your stories will be because each person brings a story from their perspective. And what you want is that wide perspective. Like you don't want seven white guys talking to you about their life. They have nothing to add to the mosque community. They just literally don't have anything to say. And so they're at your mercy and their experiences aren't going to be translated in the same way a, a person who, of color who goes to the mosque is going to be. The show is about the mosque community. And you need, a, you need an entirely different group of people to talk about these perspectives and, and experiences. And so I hired Sadia Durrani, who was a stand-up comedian from Winnipeg, and she became the second person. And gradually we started adding more people of color, which helped expand the stories more. And, and, you know, it was 2007, the whole issue of BIPOC or representation hadn't been invented yet. The transparency and accountability in writing rooms hadn't been talked about. No one thought it was strange you know, to have white showrunners running a, a room about a show that wasn't about their community. Now you're starting to see the fractures of that when we see shows coming up and we're like, where are the showrunners of color, why haven't they been trained up? This is why, because um, network executives just felt like, oh, we could only give these men that power because they have the experience, but they got the experience because they kept getting the power. And so it was like a vicious circle. So now I feel the broadcast community, film and television is opening up and we're seeing more showrunners of color. I have um, a mentor, Anthony Farrell, who was one of the writers on The Office, who was one of the writers on Little Mosque, who is now a showrunner for several shows. He mentors me. Because when I made my web series, I made sure that I was the showrunner for that show. And it was really important to me to be able to do that. I'm just thinking that I'd watch a comedy about you making Little Mosque <laughs> on the Prairie with those seven men. But to start that way and then gradually add more diverse voices and just watch that change over a season. So this kind of brings us up to this point where you've now decided to write your memoir and your story. Was there a point where you felt it was time to tell your own story? After I made Little Mosque on the Prairie, I was asked in Hollywood to write pilots for a Muslim family sitcom. And I did. I did it for four years in a row. What happens is every time you write a family sitcom and it doesn't make it to air, you also lose the rights to that. And so after reinventing the Muslim family four times, I was like, oh my God, those scripts are gone now. So I decided to write a memoir so I would have my own IP that was mine. And it, I didn't have to worry that it would disappear into someone else's hands. And I wanted something tangible in my hand that I could hold and say, I wrote a book. And that felt more creatively satisfying than writing a bunch of pilots that died and then you had nothing to show for it. Well, I want to jump to the opening of Jamila Green because it connects to an incredibly funny scene that may be in some ways inspired by your experience of writing your own memoir. Can you explain where we meet Jamila and why she's in New York City at the Uptown Barnes & Noble uh, in front of this massive crowd that she has prayed for and it seems to have come true? It's her book launch. And I got this idea from many incidents that had happened when I had the book launch for my memoir, where you think that you're going to get all this attention, but there's somebody else that's on the panel beside you that's written a much bigger and more popular book and people aren't there to hear you. And I just thought that was hilarious, right? Like this poor writer who thinks that this is her launch 
And things are going to go so well, but her her agent picked somebody else to host it. <laughs> and then all the attention went to the wrong person and the whole thing ends up being a disaster. I had spoken to other friends of mine and apparently everyone has a very similar story <laughs> to this. So I thought that would be a really great way to start the novel where she's like licking her wounds and really angry at God because this is ridiculous. Like a, a white woman sucked all the energy out of the room and, and, and she already is a bestseller. So that's where we begin. It's such a funny place to begin. I've been to so many book launches, obviously, but we've seen that happen, particularly at book festivals. What we have not spoken about is that your book, it's incredibly funny and we fall in love with Jamila, who's our lead protagonist and who's a mom and a wife and works at an insurance company and has these hopes that this book will send her on a new trajectory. But there's also um, some really serious topics like terrorism, ISIS, what it's like to have lived as a Muslim in a post 9-11 world. Can you talk a little bit about the moment that you decide to write a satire. My poor husband would say he had no idea what I was talking about because I would be babbling and babbling and babbling about this book for years. In the summer, we take a walk around Wiscana Lake in Regina and I work at my plot points. <laughs> and I, He said that he just couldn't follow me after a while. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, Angela, but I didn't really think the book was edgy or controversial. I just thought, you know, ISIS was happening and it was in the news at the time and I was just following the news and my character was following ISIS and I was doing research and it took years of writing and working with editors and we were pulling some out, pulling some in, figuring out the balance. It wasn't until people started reading it where they were like, oh my God, <laughs> she's just written this crazy edgy novel about terrorism and satire. What is she thinking? And I remember emailing a friend of mine who is a rom-com novelist and I said to her, do you think that this book might be controversial? <laughs> she said, you're kidding, right? Like you didn't see this coming. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I really didn't. I feel like it's like a frog being put in a pot of boiling water very slowly. You just turn up the heat slowly. They don't realize <laughs> that it's happening. I, I think I didn't see that coming, that it would catch people off guard. Well, it's tricky because we don't want to give too much away. Um, <laughs> what can we say? Oh. It's tricky. Can you share what the original title of the book was oh. and talk a little bit about why you chose that? And I know that's not the title of the book now, but I think it lends our listeners the type of irreverence that's inside of these pages, even if we're being a little cryptic about other things. Yeah, so I didn't want to call the ISIS-like group ISIS, so I call them the Dominion of the Islamic Caliphate and Kingdom. And the acronym is pronounced Dick. And so the original title of the book was The Rise and Fall of Dick. And I loved that title so much. <laughs> but I know, I know. I know. But then at a certain point, the publishers were like, we're sorry. The marketing people just feel that the wrong images will come up when people Google that title. And so we had to start the whole process of coming up with a different title. But I loved the idea of calling this ISIS-like group Dick because it meant removing all the fear and angst that had been associated with them for so long. And I wanted to suck it out, you know, of them. And I thought this was the most hilarious title to give them. And so it meant a lot to me to, you know, keep it in, make sure it didn't leave the book, though. Like, it's definitely in the book and, and that it means something. And so 
Sadly, you know, the title is gone, but it makes for a great story. <laughs> it does. Obviously taking on ISIS and giving them this name that sucks their power away is a strategy. What kind of decisions were you making? What were those nuances for you about tackling a violent group who do terrible things and what type of comedy you were going to use to examine them? I remember reading so many stories of people who had joined ISIS and really thought, really believed sincerely that they were going to a place of fairness and justice and equity. And they had come out of terrible situations. The Arab Spring had failed in 2013 in a lot of Muslim countries and they weren't able to get jobs and there wasn't fairness because there was so much nepotism and you know, corruption in their countries, people in Europe who were suffering under racism and draconian laws against them. Muslim women can't wear hijab in a lot of European countries and go to school. And, you know, they were suffering under cycles of poverty and unemployment. And ISIS was offering them hope and jobs and like a, a fair society. And they really, truly believed they were going somewhere that was going to be a better place for them. And it wasn't until they got there and realized that this was a very corrupt organization that didn't offer them anything better than what they had left, if not worse. So I wanted to get that across, that there were so many people caught in the grasps of this organization who didn't deserve to be to be tarred with that reputation. They were trying to leave but couldn't. Oh, they were caught because, you know, their families were being threatened. They were being threatened. And so I wanted to give humanity back to Muslims. Like, instead of just painting all of ISIS with this one brush or all of Dick with this one brush is to break it down to individuals who would join and give stories to them. And so these are human beings that have a story and and we should acknowledge that they've been racialized as one, you know, violent group of people. Like we don't make the same generalizations for white people, but we make them for brown and black people. We demonize groups and people and we don't look at their backgrounds or their histories or, or, or the context in which they had joined this group. And I wanted to explore that a little bit. You know, for sure there are people who did bad things, but then they deserve to be brought to trial. They don't deserve to be just forgotten about. There are, like I talk a lot about a lot of women and their children are left to rot in refugee camps and their citizenships have been stripped. And it's just like they don't exist anymore. We have this way of just like Guantanamo Bay, let's just forget about it. And and then people, decades pass and people are in jail or living in refugee camps with no closure. And that's not a way to deal with conflict in this world. We need to finish what we start and end the story. Otherwise, we end up creating cycles of violence all over again. Underpinning the book is also this great research in the history of the region and a look at the geopolitical environment that enabled a group like ISIS to even exist or come to be. Can you talk about that research and why it was so important for you to get it right? It was really important to get right because people didn't realize the history behind American foreign policy and how much chaos it caused in the Muslim world. I mean, I'll just give one tiny story. It's like the Americans wanted to radicalize a whole generation of children in Afghanistan. They spent $50 million creating these educational textbooks that were in grade one to six that taught little children that violent jihad was part of their faith. They had to impose Sharia on the government and they had to kill disbelievers. And they were taught to read and write with pictures of Kalashnikovs and bullets and headless people and landmines. A whole generation of children were taught with these books. And it wasn't until later when people realized the repercussions of 
indoctrinating children to grow up and be violent because many of these children ended up being members of the Taliban. And they didn't learn these things from the Quran. They learned these things from American authored textbooks. And it wasn't until much later when people were like, this was a huge mistake. But the Americans were so panicked that the Russians had invaded Afghanistan that they were trying to create radical, militant children and men. But when the Russians left, you were left with these people that were angry and wanted to fight without a cause. And they went out and lashed against the world. And so I wanted to talk about these things, that this is a pattern that reoccurs over and over and is now happening in Ukraine, as well as the Americans are dropping munitions and weapons and encouraging fighters to go there. And and I'm starting to ask the same questions. Like, oh, what do you think will happen when the Russians leave? And there's all these men that have been trained you know, militarily and are now looking for another war. Where do you think they'll go? And I've, I really worry that the Western world is going to suffer in some ways like the Muslim world has suffered through terrible wars and you know, interference by the CIA and American foreign policy because the ch- you know, chickens come home to roost and it happened with us. I feel like these are lessons we need to examine because they happen over and over again. When you're taking on a story like this, how do you balance the comedy with this history. One of the best scenes in the book is takes place on a plane and that's all I can say to everyone and I can't wait to hear from you all when you've read that scene. But how do you balance, you know, a kind of a scene that leads to a kind of a hysterical conclusion and then on the next page be, you know, interrogating foreign policy? What one of my editors cautioned me to do, they said really ground every moment in character and don't just write comedy for the sake of comedy the story comes from character and so the character has to be able to tell you why they're feeling this way what motivates them what is the background how do you tell that story through one individual person so that we can have empathy for that person and understand the actions that they take because everything has consequences all this violence around the world has individual stories through which we see the lens of violence, then we can understand and have empathy for people. And so that's what the editor had told me. We crafted and recrafted constantly to get the balance right, because sometimes it was too slapsticky, sometimes it was too history-laden, sometimes it was too plot-based, and I had to find a balance between all those elements so that people could read it and feel like, okay, this is a human being who's suffering greatly, and this is why he's doing and saying the things that he is. Well, I think you master it beautifully. And can you tell us about uh, Zaka, your web series, because the premise of it is so much fun. And (laughs) we'll also try to link to it. But I think it'll give people a sense of what you find funny, and that'll make them want to run out and buy this book as well. Oh, I was reading all these think pieces about the movie that came out called The Big Sick. And it was about a Muslim man who ends up marrying a white woman. And in the movie, he dates a lot of brown women, but they end up being like dysfunctional or not good enough until he marries his white princess. And all these brown women were so angry. They're like, what are we, are we disposable until the brown man finds the perfect, you know, fairy princess and the white woman? I, I knew they were really angry, but I thought it was so funny. I said, what, what would happen if the brown woman who has been divorced by her brown husband decides to compete against his new trophy wife, who is a yoga instructor half his age. What if she dates a white brain surgeon named Brian, who will make her ex jealous because he's a podiatrist, a foot doctor, and he's always wanted to be a brain surgeon. And that they're both competing 
against one another trophy to trophy with their white trophies. And I thought that would be a way to send up all the criticisms about Hollywood and typical rom-coms that we've seen in the past. Things have changed now, thank goodness, but in the past, that's what used to happen. And so I made a television series about what happens when Zarka tells everyone she's dating a white guy called Brian who doesn't exist and now she has to find him. And then when she does find him, convince him to be her arm candy for a wedding when poor Brian just wants to have a real relationship. (laughs) with someone. So I wanted to explore those themes of jealousy and revenge and the whole issues of women feeling devalued as they age and who have to deal with issues of divorce and remarriage. You explain that so beautifully because it's so much fun and I hope we can all see it on our screens everywhere soon. I have a question that I ask everyone that comes on and that is, what lights you up? Oh, what lights me up? Like story, story that you connect with and you can relate to and that brings you joy and happiness. Those are the things that light me up. Zaka, thank you so much for this chat. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Olmer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Vodovsky writes the theme music. See you in two weeks. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.